för sändningen. Här är er en melding från vår annonsör Litteraturhuset i Oslo. Hon har en helt speciell vilja att konfrontera mörke. Har författaren Chimamanda Adichie sagt om den karibiska amerikanska författaren Jamaica Kincaid. Kincaids klassiska romaner omhandlar rase, kön och arven från kolonitiden och den genläsas nu av stadig flera. Bli känt med hennes särägna författarskap när hon kommer till litteraturhuset i Oslo onsdag 2 november. Biljetter och mer information finner du på litteraturhuset.no. I'm, I, I write because I want people to love me because I am scared of being hated by the people. I dag så har vi något vi är er speciellt glada för att kunna sända här I, I podcasten. 23-åringen Eduard Louis är er en av Frankrikes mest omtalade samtidsförfattare. I debyn farväl till Eddie Belgöl så beskriver han sin egen väg som ung homofil man ut av livet i en arbetarklassfamilj i den lilla industribyn Halencourt i Frankrike. Här i i Montblanc så uppstod det en intens debatt mellan Louis och Charlton Flögsta. Frågstad menar att Louis beskriver arbetarklassen som lite annat än voldlig och förfylla, något man ska röm ifrån. Tror du att de som är er igen i Alancour blir uppbildna till att pröva och göra sin kora sina bättre av att läsa att de är er voldliga, alkoholiserade, nedrige omtrent på alla måter, liksom den författaren framställer de. Du kan höra förlagstad sitt sitt angrepp på, på Loi här I, I podcasten. Du finner det i episode 47 om du scrollar ner i i podcastarkivet vårt. Men nå nyligen så kom Louis andra roman ut på på norsk, Vollens historia. Där försöker han att genfortell vad som skedde han själv i verkligheten blev våldtatt. Da han var i Oslo i forbindelse med, med bokslippet, så holdt han et foredrag på, på litteraturhuset i Oslo. Du kan läsa det, det essayet i den här ukas avis. I tillegg så kom han på ett lite seminar over en flaske vin her i Morgenbladets redaktion. Der pratade han om virkelighetslitteratur och om hvordan han selv med sin rolle som offer. Ved siden av Rui, så, så kan du høre kulturredaktør Arne Farsetås. Forfatteren startet, der han satt igen av, av skinnstolene med utsikt over Akerselva, med att fortelle om sitt forhold til virkeligheten og sin egen skriveprosess. When you, were, you write a like, true story, when you write autobiography, there is this effort that you, that you have to make, and because because you are writing about yourself because you are suddenly nude you know and you tell everything about you and and then you say okay people who will talk to me the people I will meet will know so many things about me and how will i be uh, how will i feel uh, like and when you talk about something violent after writing uh, Volden's historia uh, i was thinking but if i meet someone like how, how will it be i was so afraid that people would consider me as a victim you know i was afraid of being perceived as only a victim or and and we don't want to be perceived as a victim in our life it's so it's scary and, and violent and you you don't want it that was a, that w- was why i disagreed with with flockstedt when he say uh, edouard louis is all about victimization because i as i wrote in the piece in saying that you you make as though you speak as though the problem was 
that the people were telling too much, I am a victim. Uh, uh, victimization, it means too, too many victims, like too much speech about vi victims. And the problem is the contrary, is that for people it's so hard to say I was a victim because you are afraid, because you are afraid how people will look at you, how people will speak to you, will talk to you. The problem is not the victimization, the problem is is that it's so hard to say I'm a victim. It's the complete opposite problem. And when you write about it, you have to deal with it. Like, I don't want people to think I am this poor raped boy. Like, I don't want people to think about I want Nobody people to think. Nobody wants that. No, no, no. You don't, you're afraid of that. Uh, no, unfortunately, <laughs> not really. No, <laughs> not, not really, because, no, it's more, it's more this kind of, fantasy that you have, but nobody will tell you you are only a victim. I'm very nice to meet a person <laughs> who is only a victim. So people don't think, don't think that, don't think about it. And, and when, you, when you talk about violence, when you talk about uh, things that you suffer from, I think that everybody, it's, it's the same thing for everybody, you, like inside of you, you hope that the people will love you a little bit more because they will think, okay, he suffered, so we have to be kind with him. We have to be, and to write is all about love. You want people to love you. You are, I don't know, it's a banal thing, but I'm, I, I write because I want people to love me because I am scared of being hated by the people. And, and so you talk about how much you suffered in this situation or how much other people suffered in this situation and you hope that people will like you a bit more but sometimes they just they just hate you because of that they blame you for talking about violence i don't know why but maybe they feel kind of responsible for it when you say i suffered they, f they, they, they have the impression that you are challenging them as if like as if you are telling uh, what did you do against violence what are you doing against violence And so sometimes when you say, I suffered, people blame you for that. They, so you are disappointed. <laughs> you think they will like you more, but it, sometimes the contrary happens. Not always, clearly. You, as a writer, you could write anything. You have the freedom to write fiction, for example, but you have chosen so far to say that you write only true novels <laughs> that are from true experience and have no fiction in them. Why did you want to make that choice to limit mm -hmm. yourself? in that way? I, I, I don't know, like, yeah, I know, it's, it's just, I feel that I don't have any choice, it's strange, so it's not, it's not a rule, that's, uh, it's not an order that someone is giving to me, but when I'm in front of, of the computer, when I'm in front of my blank page, if I, I, if I try to, if I start to write fiction, I feel that, and that, uh, that would be my common like spot point with with journalism. I I think that the world we live in is already full of fiction, and so I just think we have enough fiction. We have enough stories. We have enough lies. Even we are. Yesterday we talked about uh, uh, Chelsea Manning or Julian Assange and Edward Snowden. All these people, they are in jail or they are stuck uh, in Russia. It's the case of Edward Snowden. Because they revealed that the world we live in is a, is a world of lie, that states are lying to us. They hide so many things to us. They are lying all the time. And, and you know how, 
how much we can lie in the everyday life and how parents lie to their kids and lie to their... And so I, I think that, I think we are so full of fiction and we need a room for truth. We need a space for, for truth. And, and, and so I can't help it. I can't... I, If I if I try to build a character, uh, to build an, a name for this character and some clothes and what this character is having for dinner, I I just feel that I I am missing something. That there are some other stuff that are necessary hmm. right now in the present. So there was the realism of the 19th century, and. At that time, the, re the, the realism as a, as a literary movement was a way of, of discovering the world because we didn't know the world because there were no so much newspaper, there was no internet, there was no so much like communication tools. And so when Zola was writing about the working class, the people who were reading the books, they were discovering the life of the, of the working class, the way of life that they have. And, And, and even outside of realism, when you think about Conrad, when he, he, he writes the Au Coeur des Ténèbres, he speaks about lands that people didn't know, these lands in Africa. And, but now we have very powerful newspaper. They use Twitter, they use Facebook. We have all the, so we can know everything. If you, if you want to see how a city looks like, you go on Google Map and you can see the city on Google Map. And, and so what would be interesting and important today in creating a new realism would be to create precisely a realism that would try to find the truth beyond these fictions, beyond this lie, beyond these appearances that we have. So just to try to dig into the reality, to, to find what, what's really going on. And, and that, that would be the realism of today, not a realism of the picture, Not a realism because we are picturing a reality, but because we are trying to find out what's, what this picture is here and what, what, what don't we don't see. It's, it's the realism of today is the is realism of what is in, invisible. And that is extremely realist. And that's why in History of Violence, to talk about a three hours event, I, I need 200 pages just to find all the things that are going on in this only three hours. That's why Knosgaard writes so big books, <laughs> just to try to like this to with the language to to find yeah what what's happening. And when you write these real things, does that mean that every single piece, every person, every piece of clothing, every thing they say, do what they look like, how they speak, is everything true as? As in a reportage, or do you take any freedoms with how you report? Because you write about yourself, but of course there are other people there, <laughs> like the other man who uh, you have a violent encounter with. In this, is everything true as in the form of reportage about them? Or? At, at the beginning, I would I, I, I would record my sister or my mother talking. You did, yeah. I, I did as it as a form of research. Yeah. Uh huh. Exactly, and I I, I started to retranscribe. Uh, what they were saying. But as a novel, during 200 pages, it just didn't work. People, I showed it to my two best friends, Didi and Geoffroy, that I talk about in the book, and, and they told me, but we don't understand anything. Like, <laughs> we are completely lost. It's too difficult. Like, 
it's I get it's like even most difficult than the most difficult books of Celine. Like, <laughs> it's <laughs> and and so I understood very fast that I had to to build this language in order to make it more real. So maybe in a in a in a paper in a newspaper you can you can stay very close from what people actually say like word by word, but. I don't know, uh, but you when to. you have to, yeah. <laughs> kind of, or you have to oh, rewrite. You cannot say, pretend it is a quote if it is not a quote. If it's not, yeah, yeah because people then get crazy and yeah, yeah, and it's normal because, but but precisely yes, if if you are making a three hundred pa uh, pages piece, it just doesn't work. You have to, you have to rebuild it in a different way to make it more true, more more real, and. Yeah, and just, it was the uh, Svetlana Alexievich has this problem when she published her book because people say that she rewrote the interview, and she maybe she rewrote to make it more true, but people didn't recognize themselves and in in what she retranscribed. At at the beginning, I told my editor that I wanted to use another category, and uh, <coughs> and I wanted to use the category uh, drama, uh, drama like on, in, on cinema and for me it was a way of like focusing on something else you know on, and not about like I, I felt stuck in this opposition between novel and récit autobiography and I think okay if I, I use another category I will be able to try to talk differently about it to like redefine it and of course my publisher didn't want it was so scared nobody will buy a book on with drama on the cover uh, where you will make a bankrupt the publishing house if you do that and so just as they didn't want I was fighting for it um, and and at the end I, I, I was okay to take the the term novel because because I wanted people to know that it was the it was about uh, literature. It was uh, literally uh, constructed as a book. Because when you talk about violence, when you talk about poor people, when you talk about dominated people, Toni Morrison always says that you are scared of being reduced to someone who just say I suffer or these people suffer, and people t talk less about literature after. Uh, and so for me to use novel was to say, it's not because I'm talking about pe uh, poor people that it's not literature, you know? And, and, and plus, um, precisely for me, uh, I associate a, a novel with construction and I don't think that construction means fiction. Like construction can a way, uh, to be a way to reach truth, like, in sociology, uh, Pierre Bourdieu, he builds uh, tables, tableau, in order to tell the truth even more, it's even more true than if you just go to the street. He, he builds uh, graphics, he builds all these kind of things, and it's a construction. It's an act of construction that gets you closer from the truth. So, yeah. So I try to say, okay, if novel is a problem, let's give another definition to novel. And maybe it's too ambitious, I don't know, but... Because sometimes the, <coughs> the reality in its process uh, is, is fails, and you have to rebuild the truth afterwards. And, and to make this... I think I achieved it more in the history of violence, to 
give this kind of subjective truth in the moments in, in the book where when my sister is telling my story. So it was liberating for me at the beginning to write an autobiography, but precisely an autobiography told by someone else. Louis bruke sin egen familie mye i, I bøkene sine. I Frankrike så har debatten særlig gått på deres reaktion, men den har varit motsetningsfylt, sier Louis selv. My, my, my parents, when I published Eddie, uh, I'm sorry if you already know that, if you know, tell me. And, uh, but they reacted very di- differently. Like, my mother, she, she went crazy. She was very, very angry. And she went to a lot of TV shows in France to tell my son is a liar. And, and, and she was, like, very, very militant against me and against my book. And 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 my father had the uh, complete uh, different reaction, like the opposite uh, reaction. When I published Eddie, I I hadn't speak with him since like four or five years, and I was 21, so it was uh, like uh, 25% of my life without talking with him, and it was a long time. And but when I published the book, he, he called me. And and he told me, oh, Edward, I'm so proud of you. And the most important thing for me was he called me Edward because at the beginning he would he gave me the name Eddie and he was so proud of it to have a son with an American name, masculine name. <laughs> and for him, Edward was the name of a faggot of the bourgeoisie. Of a, and and so at the beginning when I told him I changed my name into Edward. He, he, he went crazy. He didn't want me to change. And each time we tried to talk together again, uh, he would tell me, Eddie, and I said, okay, you call me Edward because it's the name I choose and I want you to respect it. If tomorrow I change my sex, I want to respect it. If I tomorrow I change my name, I want you to respect it. Just try at least. And he said, no, your name is Eddie. I chose your name, so it's your name. And, and so we would cut the conversation. And it was very violent. And that time, for the first time, he, he told me, Edward, I'm so proud of you. And and he, he bought 25 copies of the book and offered it to all of his friends. And he, he was m- making copies of the new, the articles in the newspaper and putting the articles in his in the place where he works. He's a street sw- sweeper. And they have like a little room where they put the instruments and where they stay and they're full of articles about me. And and it was so brave from him because I guess for him it's so hard to say in front of his colleagues who come from the same milieu to say my son is gay and he's talking about the fact that he's gay. I know my father. I know that it's so difficult for him. So if he did that, it means a lot. It means that it really transformed him. After Eddie Belgel, I had the impression that... uh, not only an impression, I think it was an objective fact that some uh, journalists in France, from like the you know like the vulgar journalism, for the right wing vulgar journalism, they used the voice of my mother or, or my sister. You know, she, they went to see her and they were interviewing her, and to t- to say how oh, Edouard Louis is lying, it's a scandal, and and they were using her as a tool, as an object. And it really shocked me. And so history of violence was for me a way to give her vo- voice back, to give her back her voice. And because 
I, w I had the impression that I was trying to make truth in literature and that some journalists were opposing me a fiction in, into journalism, you know? And because some of them, like not the literary good journalism, like with Les Arocs or Le Monde, they are more serious. But some of the very popular ones, they just went to the house of my mother, but they sh decided to shoot her, not in the house where I grew up, but they didn't, they didn't tell it in the movie. So they made it have, oh, look at, look at this. Edouard Louis grew up in this bourgeois f uh, house, but it wasn't the house where I grew up. Mm -hmm. And they just didn't tell it. And, and they, put, they g gave my mother all the clothes, because, uh, like more rich clothes. And, and some, uh, uh, fortunately, some people saw it. They didn't interview the man. Because my brother, my brother, my father, my two, my two brothers. Because when the man speaks, you hear more the accent. You you hear more the social determination, because there is a class issue between gender in the, in the villages like this. Like you know, the Marxists would say when the feminist uh, uh, feminism appeared, the Marxists would say that uh, in the couple, uh, the man was the bourgeois and the woman was the proletaire. And in a way, it's true, but in another way, it's the contrary. Because in the village where I grew up, to be a woman was to refuse to be a peasant like the men are. It was a way of being more distinguished, of being more sophisticated, and not being like the men, or like, look like the men. They're all peasants here. We don't want them. We want a man from the city because we are a woman. And so to be a woman meant to be the bourgeois of the structure, in a way. And so because of that, the journalists they didn't interview the men because it would have... Uh, like reveal the truth of what I was saying too much. Noe av kritikken mot Louise Vaterskap, blant annet fra, fra Kjørdan Fløgstad, er at han fokuserer på minoriteter og motposisjoner i så stor grad at han forenkler systemene som undertrykkes i homofile eller svarte, sånn som den hvite arbeiderklassekulturen han kommer fra selv i, i Hallenkor. I think that there is no such thing as majority like majority doesn't exist. And when people like Flockstedt talk about the popular class, if you say homosexuality is a cultural stuff, so we don't talk about it, and don't talk about women, and don't talk about migrants, then it becomes only, if it's only the straight white men of the popular classes, it's a minority. So he's the guy fighting for a cultural issue. And, and so there is only minorities. Majority doesn't exist. And even when you build a majority, you realize that people are so different inside of it and have so different backgrounds and will and desires. And, and so I just think that we, I just think that to include these views from homosexuality or from migration or from, is just, just a way of, of, of challenging the, this kind of classical narratives and and Pierre Bourdieu was a, a white man heterosexual uh, occidental and he didn't have the point of view of a it's a matter of point of view it's not a matter of individuals you can be a black gay guy and having a discourse of a white straight man you know and it's it's just a way that you include other perspective precisely because there is no majority it doesn't exist it's just a fantasy you you include all this point of view to build your theory like 
when Jean-Paul Sartre is one of the best examples of that. In the 50s, he wrote about black people, he wrote about gays, he, was, he wrote uh, uh, philosophical essays about Jean Genet, about gays, and it was a scandal. And still, five years ago, three years, two years ago, when I was studying in Paris, some teachers didn't want to talk about Sartre because because he was too pop for them, because he talked about homosexuality in philosophy. And they were stuck like 60 years after uh, on that. And he talked about um, colonization. He talked about the uh, Jews. He talked about, he talked about everything. And he just tried to embrace all this point of view in order to create a, a less violent world. And Simone de Beauvoir did the same thing with the women, with the old people. She, she was one of the first one who talked about old people as a domina dominated category. As the, and so it's not a way of simplifying, it's a way of making it more complex. And that's why there are several voices in history of violence, because I wanted to have, to have as much, a, a, a lot of voices to, to create this analysis. And in the book I say that even if I hate the police, even if I hate the racism of the police, Uh, it is very important for me to have a place when I can talk, when I can say what happened. It's a, if in Iraq or in, uh, 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 in Moscow, in, in Russia, you are a man raped by a man, it's quasi impossible to, to go to the police and to talk to them. And I had the chance of it, so I say it. And so just to see, just to see the complexity of it, just to see, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because the ironic thing is that Chardin Fluxta himself has worked his whole life to have that working-class perspective yeah. against uh, dominant, the dominant power, so it's uh, kind of ironic that yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, those are the two fighting, because that is Chardin Fluxta's mm -hmm. uh, vision in life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And on the other end, I answered, I responded to Fluxted because I felt that we were part of a same dynamic. If it was just a right-wing person writing against me, I would have never answered because I don't want to have a dialogue with these people because they're not my space. They're not the people I want to talk with. And I responded to Flockstadt, even if I have to say I was very shocked by what he said about women and homosexuality, but, but still I, I felt part of the same group, part of the same dynamic. And so that's why I thought it was important. Like, In France, the National Front, they are attacking me, they are, but I never answer because I don't want to dialogue, to have a dialogue with them. Louis er også selvkritisk til deler av sitt eget korte forfatterskap. Han har ikke alltid vært flink nok til å sette seg selv inn i den kulturen han beskriver. I debuten så, så ga han for eksempel ikke seg selv sosiolekten han og familien snakket. One of, one of the mistakes I made in Eddie Belgrill when I published it, and I didn't realize it, it's pe people told me after publishing it, they told me that when I use this language, when I use this italics, this popular vernacular, it's always, uh, it's always the other people who are using it, my mother, my sister, mm. but never me. Mm. And I was talking this language as well. Mm. And when, while I was writing the book, I didn't realize that I put this language in the mouth of the others, but never in my mouth. Mm. I didn't see it. And... And because of course, I, uh, yes, it was for me a way to 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 testify the, the distance mm. without even realizing it. Mm. Do you regret that decision now, or 
because many people have read it just as that a distance mm -hmm. you have your language they have theirs it's a very clear distance uh, of the voices yeah like so that's that's because I felt bad about it that I I I wrote uh, history of violence more as a dialogue between this the two languages I wanted to th these two languages to speak together but even even if at the uh, on the other hand I am always uh, distant and scared with the discourse of of some people of the bourgeoisie who loves the popular vernacular because they say oh it's fantastic it's funny and it's inventive mm -hmm. but because you can't say this without saying that this language exists because they, these people were excluded from school because they live in places that are far from the centers you know so the conditions of this language the condition of possibility of this language is a lot of difficult things, so you can't just say, "Oh, it's, it's, it's fantastic." And I know that uh, we can speak with Edouard all night, uh, <laughs> just from uh, how much we have to say. But I have to take him on a boat. School. Det var altså Edouard Louis. Du kan lese hele hans essay om Toni Morrison i den her ukas utgave av Morgenbladet. Du finner både på, på nett og på papir, og om du ikke er abonnent enda, så kan du kjøpe enkelte artikler ved hjelp av VIPS. Liker du det du hører her på Morgenbladets podcast, så fortell veldig gjerne venner og, og familie om oss. Og om du går inn på iTunes og gir oss en hyggelig tilbakemelding der, så hjelper det oss en hel masse. Musikken du hører nå i bakgrunnen er laget av Beglomegg og Oddne Meisfjord. Jeg heter Askel Matråsare. Vi høres. <tøk>